John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 993.HB0111, certificate number 28598, Project MK Ultra. Now most of his preparations have been made, and he's just about ready to go. He won't have to leave this room if he doesn't want to, but he'll travel so far that he may get lost and never come back. Transportation to the fantastic and frightening territory of inner space, courtesy of the most powerful mind-altering drug ever discovered. Destination unknown, courtesy of LSD-25. We have kind of danced around it, but we haven't really ever directly talked about conspiracy conspiracy are you i mean you and i are both 85 percent science based i thought you were gonna say 85 years old you and i are both 85 years old i'm 85 and you're 81 uh but i would say you know i mean aside from the fact that i believe that i can feel msg and I project MSG Ultra. <laughs> I don't, and I'm not fully convinced about the uh, the the um, the moon illusion for the most part. Other than that, oh, and I believe in ghosts, but otherwise, I'm very science. And I've said that I believe in two conspiracy theories, which is that penny press machines are fake, fake, right? Which are. listeners have tried to disabuse me of to no avail, right? They've gone to great elaborate lengths, they are hoaxing up series of photos and actually physical <laughs> elements. And also I believe that uh, applause graphs, applause charts, what do you call those? Applause, applause meters. Applause meters in, uh, on stadium jumbotrons are all fake. You think that's fake too. And do not actually reflect, they're pre-taped and don't reflect actual crowd noise. When the three that's hydrofoils, when three colored hydrofoils race each other dra- uh, yeah. during Mariners games, do you think that's real? There are no actual hydrofoils. <laughs> Those are filmed on a soundstage in Nevada, a, a, a watery soundstage. But what are your conspiracy? What is, what is your vulnerability or susceptibility to conspiracy? Are are there ones? There are so many, and so many of them are rooted in in fact, and so many of them then extrapolate to like outrageous ideas. I cannot read about a conspiracy, or indeed watch a documentary about anything without briefly believing in it. Mm-hmm. So I'm very easy to convince 
for the running time of that chapter. I'll be like, well, yeah, of course. Look, Think of what all these Air Force pilots are saying about the Bermuda Triangle. I mean, it's all right here. Read the book, people. Mm-hmm. But luckily, it wears off. I, I, I return to normality fairly quickly. But what is normality? How much do you believe there is, uh, that there are powers that are, are, are not supernatural, but... But that, um, but you know, there's a human force. Yeah, that there's an international banking conspiracy, or that there is, um, that that things are not what they appear. I would say my default is to disbelieve almost all of it, partly for the the traditional argument about competency. That actually, you know, it's just the Watergate thing of you know these guys aren't geniuses, and what's the line in, in all the presidents, man? These aren't the brightest guys, and things got out of control. Right. I, I generally think of power that way. These aren't the brightest ways, and things got out of control. And it's always harder to get a you know medium-sized group of people to do an elaborate thing and not talk about it than it is to not. So there's kind of an Occam's razor level at which. I just don't think that's that really explains the world as well. It's just kind of banal people being sucky, right? It does. It does seem that um, that the appearance of of top secret, that the the existence of top secret, the the and the the, the sense movie? the existence of the movie top secret. I believe that in, the in movie top Radio? secret it, it existed. <laughs> Uh, but but the sense that once you say that the, something is top secret, once you start locking uh, boxes full of documents behind a door, that the potential for there to be an endless depth and breadth of of secrets behind the door um, leads one to conclude that that's probably true. That there are there there is an infinite, um, or or at least there are or there are nine levels of of hellish secrets in a, in a warehouse in, in, uh, Alexandria, Virginia somewhere. That said, sometimes they do come out and they often do come out of Alexandria or Langley, Virginia. And, but they often are kind of stupid and banal. Like when you, That's the thing. when you watch the guys who got the CIA to start doing the waterboarding, they're dimwits. They're dimwits. They, you know, they, certainly this happened and it was kept from the American public, but there were no shadowy puppet masters they were just people in meetings looking at powerpoints and nodding and doodling and as a result terrible things happen and the banality of it is the is so often really the 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 operative energy right I, it, yeah if if you I like mean, if you I'm, ask these people are you in a conspiracy theory they'd be like no <laughs> and and the and their choices they're making Although it it often produces evil results, they are coming from a kind of logical and maybe not very well thought out and ultimately not ethical place. But like the ethicality of it uh, isn't their first consideration at the time, right? They're not they're not acting in a way that they think is evil. It ends up producing a result that we retroactively conclude is evil. Or unethical. And this is the famous, what, Hannah Arendt thing about the Nazis. Is right. They were, you know, for by and large, they were just kind of bureaucrats nodding and, noddle, nodding and shuffling paper. And it doesn't mean they weren't a threat. As a result, over 10 million, you know, 12 million people died. Right. You can't. You Almost can't, everyone thinks they're the hero yeah. of any story, of their own story, right? No one goes into a situation thinking, 
I'm the bad person it's in the most this story. Terrible thing in the world that everybody has his reasons. And I almost think it's kind of my operative principle reading a, a Bermuda Triangle book. And for the whole time, I'm nodding and believing it. Like the tendency of people to kind of nod and be like, well, this is certainly a thing. Let's do this. Um, it really explains CIA people sitting in meetings and having these two dimwits with bad academic credentials telling them everything they know about interrogation is wrong. And they're like, oh, okay, oh. well, Joe and Don just told us this is going to be good. So, yep. Off we go. Let's go get coffee. What's interesting about the 20th century, and in particular the second half of it, is that there was a kind of a perfect storm of technology and um, biochemistry and Cold War politics and uh and political ideology that created a, 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 a little tempest of a, a desire for there to be a, a desire and a, and, a, and a, an imagined necessity that there be whole realms of life that are kept secret because of the risk it would pose if those secrets fell into the hands of our enemies. But we also had the science to, uh, to keep, Secrets, or we had the we had we had new technologies that enabled us both to spy and also to uh, to secret information away to de- to develop secret you know uh, files on people and maintain them, but also the biochemistry of being able to manipulate people with drugs and with um, with psychology, which was also a, a fairly new development in the mid-20th century. Uh, it, during World War II, and World War II is kind of a product of it, um, or the, the worst crimes of World War II. It's an, it's a, it, was a, it was a testing ground or a petri dish for the mechanization, the industrialization of war uh, in a and way. And genocide. And genocide, ultimately, which yeah. was, which was a, as much a bureaucratic uh, but it's the things uh, you're the, saying. The product of a bureaucratic crime. New right? technologies, having to build a massive uh, bureaucracy to carry this thing out, and then essentially keeping it as secret as you can. Right. And 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 suspecting that because there were secrets, because there are so many secrets, that your enemy also has rooms full of 10 layers of secrets. And if they do, then probably they have secret technologies that can beat you in war. It really wrecks havoc with what you think of as your ethics or even your side's ethics, you know, and that's when it's your side, then it's kind of ethics in quotes because then there's a little more leeway. Well, I don't agree with this, but you know, this is what we do. Um, Because once you believe that a shadowy enemy will, will go to any length, then that's a, that's a free ticket. When to, you th- to do whatever it takes. When you think about prior to World War II, there have always been conspiracies, right? That the American government were uh, was a Masonic um, tribe or the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. or You know, there's always some story about how the Rothschilds are controlling the banks. That's not—that probably doesn't go back that far. Well, I mean, if you think about— uh, I often wonder how much we overlay onto— there's a lot of that, but also... Like, did Renaissance-era Europe have people being like, the, you know what the Medicis have? Well, sure, They've because... They've got a flying machine. If you think about the Catholic secret societies, right? What were the Jesuits formed to do? They were there to counter the Reformation. There were there were secret groups that, that 
as soon as you tied them back to the Knights of Malta and gave them this quality of like a, you know, like a, a righteous angels of justice or whatever. But, it, but as you're saying, it was not a thing that, that permeated a, a normal society. It wasn't yeah, a, a, a commonplace. A lack of a popular press probably yeah. helps. Like even if, even if a few wealthy people are speculating about the Knights of Malta or the Knights Templar or whatever, it's not going to reach the the common people the way it would today. Well, and also how much can you, there's no Alex Jones in, how, yeah, and how, in the Renaissance. How, how many strings can these people pull? I mean, they can't, they're not, they can't get into your home. They're not surveilling you through your television. Yeah, I mean, set. what affects you in that era? The weather. Right. And that's about it. Unless you think the Medici's can control the weather, you're good. But post world war one and, and beginning in world war two, you have this, uh, you have this, this threat of global communism, which was a thing in the mid 19th century, that uh, sort of unveiled itself as a potential, not just to feudalism, but to which initially was kind of the the idea that communism was going to overthrow the reigning monarchs of Europe. But then when communism posed a threat to democratic capitalism, all of a sudden the idea that there was, and, and particularly because it was located in Russia and China, that it was a kind of Asian Oriental threat to the West. We don't do this today with new threats, by the way. No, no, no. We don't insist not. on their Asianness <laughs> as a way to, <laughs> to fight back. But uh, but what this produced in World War II was, and in, and it's one of the things that fascinate a lot of uh, boomer dads about the Nazis, is all their secret weapons, all their secret plans, all the secret techniques, and a, and a lot of what we saw from Nazi Germany seemed to indicate that there was maybe a, a, or there, there, there was this super deep bench of secret weapons, secret plans, secret things that if only the Germans had had two more years to work up their, their helicopter that, uh, that sprayed love drug all over everybody that maybe that, you know, maybe the Germans could have won. Well, ambition is complex. You know, we, we are not from a, uh, you know, we're, we're imperialist in our way, but we're not ambitious about, you know, we're not talking about raising Berlin and building some vast new capital that'll last a thousand years. You know, once you've got an enemy talking about stuff like that, it, you know, it's hard not to be fascinated. Right. And because we're too lazy for that. Especially looking back at it and imagining in 1945, uh, what the technologies were that, uh, at the end of the war, the Germans never had, never got a, a, a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. They never had an intercontinental ballistic missile. They never had a really, you know, a, a jet bomber, like a, like a, a long distance intercontinental bomber. And all these things within five years of the end of the war were part of the new, uh, arsenal of freedom, arsenal of freedom. I'd love to have it. I love when freedom has an arsenal because that's what makes it really free during world war two. We're also developing computer technology, there's a lot of um, there's a, incredible advancements in medicine and all of this by from the standpoint of 1952 looking back and even that distance from from the end of Nazi Germany or the or Imperial Japan and imagining what if those what if Imperial Japan what if Nazi Germany had had these technologies even five years ago or ten years ago I mean it's almost like conspiracy theories are powering the whole boom because we suddenly imagine. Uh, an enemy that has these things in their in their secret layers and machinations, and in doing in fighting against that 
illusory shadow puppet, we, we become that enemy. The Abyss Gazes also. And we didn't have to imagine it because the Soviet Union was that enemy. And they had all the uh, the iconographic and authoritarian energy of the Nazis, plus their desire to sweep away private property and replace it with not just universal health care, but uh, everyone wearing a flat cap and working in a factory, pulling on a giant wrench. You have to wear tan. You have to wear tan. That was the last time. straw. No one gets any, you know, you're, 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 giant every, wrench. everyone has to drive a Trabant. There's no interesting cars anymore. You can't, can you imagine just getting lining up to get issued your, your wrench? Here's your wrench. So you can tighten one, <laughs> one bolt. Your flat on, cap and your giant one wrench. One tractor bolt on the line all day. So at the end of the war, uh, the Office of Strategic Services, which was our, um, you know, our wartime, wartime intelligence, intelligence uh, morphed into the Central Intelligence Agency, and the CIA was was uh, given a mandate. They weren't allowed to uh, have a sort of domestic spying, any domestic influence in the United States. Plot point in every kind of hacker heist movie. The That's C- right. The CIA can't spy on you at home. That was the FBI's job. Uh, but the CIA was out gathering intelligence and trying to make sense of this new world where the Soviets had all of these things that we had that would have been terrifying in the Nazis' hands: uh, chemical and biological warfare, nukes, computers. And the Soviets did, in fact, ha- spies. Ha- they did, in fact, have them. They did. This was not made up at this point. It wasn't, but the degree to which they had them and were prepared to use them uh, powered a Cold War that lasted uh, that lasted fifty years. Right? And to some degree, we later found out that the army was, you know, thirty guys with moths coming out of their pockets. Yeah, there was. They, they they did not actually pose as much of a technological threat as we thought, and also except the moths, which which could have put <laughs> holes in our clothes. The moths could have, but also it turned out the Russians did love their children too <laughs> and were not, and, and had no faith that they were going to be able to survive uh, a nuclear exchange. They weren't and, spoiling for no, anything. We thought were, they were spoiling. We thought they were fixing. They were just trying to bring an agrarian revolution to Africa, just like we were, it turns out. Just like China is today. But within the CIA, they're there became institutionally a kind of explainable and understandable paranoia. Their job was to be paranoid, and that paranoia became in the in the minds of the small group of probably pretty smart people that were trying to run this organization and do the job they were tasked to do. Uh, that paranoia became um, kind of extreme, impacted paranoia. And paranoia, for lack of a better word, is good. Right? If that's your job. If you're paranoid, if your job is to outline to the president what happens if jetliners strike skyscrapers, a sufficiently paranoid person could have saved thousands of lives. Uh, if that paranoid person had uh, had either the power to uh, bring that to someone's attention, the lack of interagency squabbling, right? Or yeah, right. Or the or the the braveness. I'm right? just yeah. I'm just saying the job does require paranoia, like paranoia envisioning the worst possible thing is really bad in, in private life, but there's, I guess, certain kinds of uh, policy and, and, you know, military spheres where you need a few people doing that. It's good to have a few paranoid people. I don't know what the percentages you want. 
I think you want you want a few, but you want some non-paranoid people to be their supervisors. <laughs> At the end of World War II, it was recognized by both the Soviets and the United States that the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese scientists and engineers, uh, biologists and chemists had been doing uh, like extremely forward and valuable scientific work. Were the Nazi mad scientist thing? That's kind of true. The they, Nazis, they were doing weird genetic experimenting. Well, there was a lot of stuff they were doing. Rocketry, most prominently, we think of as uh, a, a lot of the captured German rocketeers got us to the moon, or if, in, according to your beliefs, Nevada got us to got us to the moon, and also you know were also a portion of them were taken to the USSR and developed their ballistic missile program and their space program. But they were the Germans were working on a whole host of things that at the end of the war there was a recognition that those scientists, those uh, academics. And also a lot of um, a lot of people with sort of questionable scientific backgrounds and experience. They they became a valuable commodity to the post war world. And the United States had a program called Operation Paperclip, and Operation Paperclip was uh, was this plan to take important German scientists many of whom were actual Nazis or collaborators or, in other way, ways, really pretty bad operators. We weren't looking for just good Germans. Not looking for good Germans at all. We were looking for Germans that could help us. And, uh, good R&D Germans. And we went to great lengths to, um, to help them escape from Russian-controlled zones in Germany and uh, bring them to America, resettle them, give them jobs, new identities in many cases. And we think most prominently about the rocket people, Werner von Braun being the, being the most eminent of them. He did not get a new identity. He wasn't in Westchester as um, Warner Brown. He didn't, but he... Ach, al- new neighbor! <laughs> he also, My copy of New York World arrived! He was also not one of the, the uh, Nazis, although, you know, he had... He had he had slave labor working on his rockets. He wasn't actually like doing medical experiments on right. twins, or he wasn't a, a big party member. wasn't a party was member. Apolitical. wasn't somebody that was that was trying to advance the you know the SS ideology. But there were people uh, that were perceived as valuable to the United States who were doing that kind of work. We weren't. Uh Above getting a good eugenicist or two, we weren't, and and a big part of it was that a lot of the um, a lot of the work that was being done by the Germans then was was psychological work um, that experiments that we would consider incredibly unethical, uh, and most of which were in the family of torture and torture. The desire uh, that a torturer has, if I can get inside the mind of a torturer, is to basically extract information from a person. You have a person, that person has information that you think you need. It's either about troop movements or, or the, the development of a program or where the, you know, where the gold is hidden or whatever. And that person won't reveal that information. And a torturer wants to get that information out. And 
up until the mid 20th century and until the 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 development of the of the discipline of psychiatry and psychology uh a torturer just felt like i if i give you enough pain or threaten you with pain or threaten your extended family with pain uh at a certain point you will you'll crack or you'll surrender and give me the information that I want. But after the development of psychology, there became this whole new realm, which was maybe it's more than just get you to surrender. Maybe I can break your brain. Maybe I can get inside your mind. And, and is the advantage that 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 forestalls any ability of the torturee to lie? To right the idea that your psych your psychology that in your mind is information in your mind is a, is a world. And if I can, uh, I maybe don't have to resort to physical pain. Maybe I can confuse you or hypnotize you or convince you that I am your. Yeah. I'm wondering how much convincing is there is the idea that I can, I can turn you to me or is it just like you're a computer and I can hack the files. There are so many different, uh, different ideas mm. during this period, right? Maybe I can convince you I'm your mother and I can get you to tell me what it is because I'm your mommy. Or maybe I can get you to forget that you are on the other side and convince you that you're on our side. Not just by by normal methods. By good argument. But, but perhaps I can, through either chemistry or psychology or a combination of both better interrogating through chemistry. That's right. Actually get you to, um, change your mind. And what's interesting is it seems more humane. Now you're not breaking fingers. Now you're not waterboarding. Now you're not even playing white snake at people. And like a lot of stuff, it feels scientific. Exact. Right. And whether or not humane, which is which is hardly ever a consideration among these people, humanity. But it seems hygienic, I Hygienic, guess. Yes, that's right. That's, that's what the Nazis would have wanted. And so a lot of those people, or, or a handful of doctors, and, you know, and these are not the, the Mengele's, right? They're not people who are, um, they weren't the, the top level guys who were torturing twin girls they but they were this class of kind of um and they not just psychologists and biologists but vivisectionists and all kinds of creeps uh the russians and americans fought over these doctors just just as much as they did the physicists and the rocket scientists you don't want there to be a creep gap (laughs) (laughs) you want to win the creep war for sure the creep race that's wonderful Starting in the mid fifties, so uh, so uh, a lot of these doctors were brought back to uh, uh, to assist the United States in developing chemical because this is also an era where chemical and biological warfare continues apace, and this was stuff that was being worked on from a long time before uh, in World War One and and also in World War Two, and we didn't see a ton of. Uh, because because you know gas attacks had been outlawed. Yeah, on the battlefield, there's a broad consensus this is bad and not going to happen. But I guess what the OS, the intelligence community is thinking is that behind closed doors, more tactically, there's a place for this. And if people don't know, it's okay. Well, and and because it, because there there could be this surreptitious angle. There was a lot of work done on 
communicable diseases that might be transla- transmitted by insects. In fact, there uh, the 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 Chinese in, during the Korean War accused the United States of flying over and uh, flying over the jet or with a I'm sorry with an airplane and sort of crop dusting their troops with with mosquitoes with, that had with been inf- malaria mosquitoes? infected with yellow fever or something. Oh, wow. So there there was work being done there. There was a there's a place in Maryland and it still exists today called Fort Detrick. And it's the the headquarters of the US biological and and um you know all the the science being done around what what was for a long time state sponsored bioterrorism? It was <laughs> it was biologic it was aggressive biological warfare up until a certain point when that was outlawed and Nixon outlawed it and it became purely a defensive operation. So this is a time when there was not some broad consensus that uh, that germ warfare should be off the table? Oh, there absolutely was. It was just that this was all part of the secret clandestine We, we were going to do it anyway because what if they did? Yeah, Congress never said, yes, let's be, you know, uh, let's be working on a, on a sarin gas hose that we can put under the door of, uh, of our East German enemy because you wouldn't put that in the name of the bill right you you would call it the um the the what the strength through ingenuity act yeah strength through ingenuity <laughs> act yeah oh you've read the papers <laughs> but by the mid or early 50s there was a kind of consensus that it was not there there was so much secrecy so many spies and so much information being concealed that was that had a that had a sort of global impact that there needed to be a program to extract information from uh from not just from your average joe but from spies that had that had been trained not to reveal right you couldn't just take a super spy and crack his knuckles and make him scream uncle they they were you know, they were trained to take that information to their death. It's a biological analogy of the cybersecurity thing, whereas defenses get better, you have to have more ingenious ways to crack them, which in right. turn make the defenses better, except here we're dealing with human minds. So the the, the first director of the CIA, Al, a man named Alan Dulles, who was like the great paranoid of his time, um, he okayed this program called MK Ultra, And MK is a is a prefix that designates Mark the, Knopfler. Mark Knopfler, but uh, but you're and gonna also, break people with sweet sweet bluesy guitar licks. It was it was the same group that made Mary Kay cosmetics, and that's a thing that people don't <laughs> ever connect. All right? the surplus MK Ultra stuff is now. <laughs> Every time you see a pink Cadillac drive by, know for sure that it's part of the secret directive. MK is, is just a uh, is a prefix that means that it is a program that came out of the the. The portion of the CIA, the op, the the sort of operations side, excuse me, of the CIA. It doesn't stand for anything. It's just some arbitrary two-letter code. It's a two-letter code. MK just means it's from the Office of Technical Services. Okay, that would be TS. I don't T- want to tell right. the CIA its job. Is this to make it more secret? Uh, it, it's just one of the one of the other things. TS, but if you put it into the the Enigma code machine, <laughs> it turns it into MK. That's good to know. Uh, and that is the off. That's like the clandestine. Um, the cloak and dagger group at CIA, and then Ultra is as as it suggests, kind of the the it denotes that it's the topest of top secrets, 
And the program Ultra was... Ultra is the highest level? Ultra is the highest level. It's above... It was during the it's war. It's above least, Indigo yeah. and Crystal and whatever, <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah, else they right. got. And what this program was, was trying to experiment with all the different ways that you can get inside a person's head. Hypnosis. Um, and a lot of these things we think of now as just sort of routine torture, although wouldn't have been at the time. Like, like what? Just Sensory sleep, deprivation. Sleep deprivation. And- sleep deprivation uh, isolation. Um, you know, the use of, of things that... Um, that are more in the psychological sphere, like shame, sexual shame, um, any any kind of methodology that's trying to not just break a person, but but tempt them or uh, manipulate them. They had a, some kind of blue sky weekend, and they put a ton of ideas on a whiteboard. Right. Hey, what are some of these things? What would, what, what could you do to a commie? Well, a new development dur- that also happened during the war, kind of unrelated. To the war itself, but but um, but part of this better living through chemistry era was in 1939. Uh, a Swiss chemist by the name of Albert Hoffman discovered LSD 25, right? Lysergic acid, and he was the first one to try it out, right? Imagine him biking home that day, and it was sort of accidental. Like he 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 discovered it. It's a kind of it's a component of ergot, uh, uh, like a fungus, right? right? And it took him a while in experimenting with it to actually dose himself. And that didn't happen until the middle of the war. So unrelated to all the other things happening during the war, in in the mid-40s, in neutral Switzerland, uh, Albert Hoffman riding home on his bike is tripping his balls off. This is why you've got to stay... That's why you need neutral countries during a war. Right. Somebody's got to be developing the next level of hallucinogen. And if you think about... The potential, just think about what if LSD had existed and was widely known in 1938, how it would have been employed in World War II, what, what, how different that war would have been just by the presence of this one kind of, I mean, not innocuous, but sort of unrelated chemical. I feel like... um Maybe the well-grounded officers like Tom Hanks and Saving Private Ryan, they hmm. could have really learned a lot about themselves. Yeah, his jittery hand. He might yeah. have taken some of this and gone on a little exploration. But the ones that are already a little, or, or like the, the very peaceful guy that wants to hang out with the with the Tahitians in a thin red line. Right. Like that guy, uh, Jim Caviezel or whoever it is. Give that guy some acid. But there's a lot of these guys that you do not want tripping on the beaches. It's, it's what what is your, as a layperson... When you think of LSD and what LSD does to a person, I mean, yeah. what what are, what do you uh, think? I have nothing to compare it to. Like, I have I, secondhand experiences of people describing the kinds of hallucinations they have, which are not just sensory, which really affect, you know, what they perceive to be happening, things that they know and understand are changing. So it's not fully sensory, right? But yeah, I have no firsthand experience with hallucinogens. It's just that it seems to be very... Is it like an Empire Strikes Back where, like, if you go to the tree with good vibes, you have a good time at the tree? But if you go to the tree with bad vibes, Darth Vader cuts off your head or something? It's not even as simple as that, right? I mean, uh, you can have a good trip or a bad trip and you don't even know. I mean, you can have a, there are a hundred kinds of good trip. And I think there's a misconception generally that the, um, that the experience you're having on LSD is, uh, like an, 
an imported one where all of a sudden you're seeing rainbows or, or uh, you're, you're hallucinating, seeing things that aren't there. New items are appearing. You are New having uh, thoughts that aren't real. And the, the classic example of a, of a very stoned or hallucinating person where they're just sort of looking at their hand or, or walking through a normal environment and going, whoa, man, whoa. The perception is that that person is is seeing unreal things or having unreal experiences. But what's intense about a lot of LSD experiences is that you're having a very real experience. The I mean, the reason that you're looking at your hand is not that you are um, – it's not that you're like stupidly amazed. No, it's by lending some new overtone of, of color or complexity to the, the things you're already looking at. Not just that. It is what it is doing is it's uh, what LSD can do is take away the the that aspect that of our lives where we're inured to something as amazing as our hand. Mm. Right. If you really look at your hand, it's a it's a phenomenal device. Like it's, it's insane to think that we have this tool attached to our arm. What's insane is that I'm not taking LSD right now I know. because I'm not appreciating all these things. And when we, we, we're, we're so, um, all of these amazing things all around us, we don't perceive them as amazing because they're so common and, and we experience them every day. And so you look at your hand and you're like, yep, there it is. My stupid hand. Couldn't you just do a little affirmation in the morning? Do you have to drop acid? Uh, well, it's that it's that as LSD can give you uh, this, and and it happens in many ways, and a lot of it isn't visual. A lot of it is just psychological. Yeah, that that what was formerly what you ignored because it was so common, you suddenly are able to see for all its complexity, all its uh, all of what makes it amazing, and it, so it is very LSD can be extremely. Uh, enlightening, emotional, religious. Um, it can also be fun because all of a sudden something that seemed so dumb and normal you realize is is hilarious or wonderful. But it can also be awful because there's a lot uh, in the world that we use this kind of numbness to um, to let not hurt us. That's how you cope with the you know, well, I mean, we've created a modern world that's really more complex than anything our brain evolved to do. Right. Plus, just regular ancient things like relationships hurt a lot. Well, or you can just look at a group of five people and realize they're all alpha predators and extremely dangerous. And it's true. But you don't see you don't see your, your the five people you work with as predators in a typical day, you see them as standing in between you and the coffee. Are you machine. saying offices should have like acid dropping as team building? I wouldn't recommend it, but also I wouldn't say it was the worst thing. <laughs> so LSD is, is an incredibly powerful new drug. And in a way, the experience that it gives a person can feel very ancient. It doesn't, it's not like, um, it's not like methamphetamine that feels like a very modern experience. Like, uh, a, um, Cyberpunk like, drug. Yeah, a drug that makes you feel like a s kind of super strength, super capable, super smart. LSD can connect you to things that feel as old as time, but also can be very, uh, well, and it's ex extremely unpredictable what your experience is going to be. The, the revelation that LSD had such a profound effect on 
a person's sense of reality. And again, when we say that in the popular press, you think that what it's doing is creating things that are unreal. And it can. But when it affects your sense of reality, what that often means is that you it's not that you don't perceive reality. It's it that you perceive it too much. Well, you perceive it in a very new and, and hmm. can be un, you know, destabilizing yeah. or insecure way. The CIA got a hold of this new drug, LSD. Is there some guy outside of Langley giving out, uh, handing little, out blotter paper with blotter Mickey Mouse on it, Nancy yeah. and Sluggo on it. Um, and they, because the the uh, the potential of this drug was was yet unexplored, uh, they naturally felt like this might be the long-awaited mind control drug that's that spies and um, authoritarians had been looking for for centuries. Truth right? serum is already a trope in fiction, I think, at this point. And, and this is like it's part of the Spanish fly family, right? That there's a drug where you can create. In, in the case of Spanish Fly, that you can that you can create lust. Uh, it's it's wish fulfillment. It's wish fulfillment, and truth serum being like hypnotism. I mean, there are plenty of examples of people that went into a state, uh, and within that state were were suddenly either speaking in tongues or telling real truths, and the desire to be able to to elicit that in someone, particularly someone who's resisting. Um, it has it is it is a trope and a powerful one from long ago, and here we had uh, with the advent of LSD the potential for a drug that, if harnessed, if researched and made into a um, and weaponized, I guess uh, that that it showed real promise to be a gateway into the mind that could be controlled by science. I was looking to see if like. The things we think of modernly as, you know, approximations of truth serum, like sodium pentothal, for example, right, uh, had been were in the public consciousness or were being used, but it looks like maybe no, that's all post MK Ultra, right? Back then, I mean, I guess OSS was already experimenting with giving people like mescaline and marijuana and seeing if they could get people to talk that way, and I think in general they found that it's pretty much like getting them drunk. It's not. Yeah. It's not a. It's not a magic bullet. But but LSD is a different animal entirely. Yeah. And so they began doing experiments within CIA. Uh, there was a, a scientist by the name of Seymour... Butts. <laughs> by the way, people like it when you say within CIA. They, within they, like, CIA. they like the tradecraft of not saying the CIA. Yeah. So within CIA, there was a... a a scientist by the name of Sidney Gottlieb, and he was heading up the MK Ultra program and became sort of fascinated by LSD. And they started experimenting within CIA at first. Uh, Are these guys just trying it on each other? They're and, trying it and, on and each other. And tripping and just amazed by the results the way you get amazed by everything yeah, on LSD? Yeah, somebody, somebody takes LSD, somebody sits across the desk from them and says, now what are you, now what are you feeling? Yeah. Now what are you feeling? Uh, and that... And they, they learned a lot that was kind of fascinating to them, but they realized right away that if they were going to use this as part of either a brainwashing drug or a, or a, um, 
a torture drug. We were or, okay brainwashing people? Because you just expanded the CIA's purview quite a bit. You've been saying interrogation, and now what, we're going to brainwash them? Brainwashing is a is a version, I mean, if you think about what it actually means, right? Washing the brain of, uh, of you know, t- turning a person not just into a super soldier, but a lot of the stuff that you want to do in tradecraft is take a person extract the information and then put them back into their normal life and not have them remember or realize that they'd been made because you want to put them back in their in you know especially if it's a spy counter spy right. situation if somebody realizes the secrets have been taken they will change the secrets right if you could take someone extract the secrets put wrong information or other, you know, or, or misinformation into their head and put them back into their old life where they didn't know what had happened. We've replaced Bob's Soviet secrets with Folger's crystal. That's right. Let's see what Wait happens. A minute. He never gets a second cup of our coffee. <laughs> so all of this, uh, they, they quickly realized they couldn't just do in a sort of testing environment. They needed to start testing this police say on American citizens out in the world. And the first thing they did was start dosing CIA employees without their knowledge. Like just administrative staff. You're just a guy sitting there drinking his cup of coffee. And all of a sudden he's, he's hallucinating. And there's four guys around the corner giggling and watching him with a, um, with a, uh, like a, a clipboard and taking notes on him. And they did this, uh, and it created real problems. A, 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 a man <laughs> with, with HR, <laughs> with, with, not just with HR, but uh, a CIA employee and kind of a, a high-ranking one by the name of Frank Olson was dosed in 1953, and nine days later um, jumped out of a 13th-floor hotel room to his death. Directly attributable. He had a bad trip. He, or? he had a he had a bad trip and. And became insanely depressed, but it was, and and his and his his suicide. It was ruled a suicide, uh, and attributed to the fact that he had a, a a bad trip on LSD. And and we see throughout the sixties and seventies, Frank Olson is continually referred to uh, as this program comes out as an example. Although hundreds of people and maybe more died in the process of all of these experiments. We laugh. We have a good time. Frank Olson was, you know, was a high ranking guy at, at CIA and, and committed suicide, quote unquote, committed suicide. Uh, he reappears over and over later on, uh, when the church committee, and we'll talk about them in a second, investigated this whole program. Uh, Frank Olson was one of the guys that they referred to in very recent Times just in the last few years, his family uh, advanced the theory that what happened was he took LSD and realized that his own work at CIA was immoral Mm. and had not, he didn't trip out and become depressed. He, he saw as a result of his trip that what he was doing was unethical and had a crisis of faith and he was pushed out the 13th floor window because he was Wait, he, he was, was literally pushed by somebody else by in, somebody in, else to, in the CIA to get him out of the CIA cuz he was prepared to go public with uh the the Whoa. terrible experiments they were doing and the, his family brought suit in 2012 against the CIA or against I'm sorry against the 
the um, against the government, say making claims that they'd had they'd had him exhumed and his and he showed signs of contusions pre, pre prior to death where he'd been hit on the back of the head and thrown out the window. Oh wow! And there was a there was a fairly large settlement. I, I like how they were willing to suck up the idea that yeah we we dosed this guy into killing himself when the alternative is. We dosed him, and he saw the truth. And then we had to push him out a window and blackjack him on the back of the head. So after they realized they could no longer dose Frank Olson's because Frank Olson would stop wanting to be a CIA like bio weapons master. It was not just a truth serum; it was a virtue serum. They started to take this show on the road, and they made, and they did this in conjunction with. Uh, Columbia and Stanford. Yeah, I was thinking about when you read about all these kind of awful obedience experiments of the 50s and 60s, the guidelines on who could be a research subject were very different than what they are today, even in academia. For in, in a lot of ways, it was in the 50s a kind of cool, beatnik, hipster thing to do, to go down to Stanford and participate in these LSD experiments. And there were, I mean, my own parents, my mom and dad were headed in 1960, 59 or 60, had it all planned out. They were get, they were going to get in the car and drive up to Canada and take part in these exciting new LSD experiments because my folks were were uh, hipsters who who had psychiatrists and and this all seemed like fun. And I think their plans got canceled a couple of times, and then uh, it started to you know it was just right in that time period where. Uh, it stopped being so merry, and I think yeah, this didn't even seem risky at all at the time. It wasn't even naughty to do this. No, it was it, just it like was, it was the new thing. This is a new thing, and it's very unusual. But at the same time, there would this, be like yoga or something, something like that, right? And not not all all the way to ayahuasca weekend in Canada. Yeah, it was something. Like, let, let's go up and take this new experiment. Like doing a, like doing a juice cleanse. Yeah, maybe we'll, you know, maybe we'll learn something about ourselves or, you mm-hmm. know, it was part of that era. It's a couple's getaway. But the CIA was also dosing prisoners and mental patients and drug addicts and sex workers, anyone they could find. Who won't say no or who sue. Who won't say no, who, who, um, who they could kind of uh, isolate without anyone missing them and mess with them in a big way. Again, CIA, no power to do anything on do anything domestically, but that doesn't seem to trouble them. Didn't trouble them at all. And they were experimenting um, on people all around the country. There were, uh, there were dozens of universities involved, but also CIA had crazy um, little programs and sub-programs where they were trying these drugs out on different populations in different conditions and going through uh, situations where, or where they would, they would give people LSD and then subject them to terrible torture. Um, If you can imagine how bad torture is on its own. Now imagine it if you're on LSD. Because they want to see what the cumulative experience is, like how much more persuasive are our normal tactics if we combine them with these new chemical attacks. And a lot of this is directly building on experiments that Nazi doctors did during World War II to see what the limits of human endurance were, 
to see like exactly how much a person could take before they broke. But now we had a new level of break. How far can you take a person before they forget who they are? How, how, how broken can a person's mind be? And then can you put it back together? I mean, and I associate all these with threats of what if the evil communist empire did these things? What if they had a Manchurian candidate uh, amongst us? And I assume, so all these experiments are coming out of that same imagination. Yes. And And we want to make sure we know how that works so we can not just defend against it, but maybe do it first. We would love, I mean, Manchurian candidate was a big, uh, was one of the, the ultimate goals. What if we could brainwash a person so that they thought they were living their normal life, but at the at the sound of a bell or a secret code, they would they would realize that they were a trained operative. I mean, it's it's the born idea, right? And all this stuff makes all the kind of mental illness tinged fiction of that time, like all the all the acid infused, not just the Keezys, but the Philip K. Dicks. Like you really see that they're not paranoid if they're really out to get you. You right. know, like that's a way of perceiving reality that was not uh, out of touch with how. The people in power were trying to shape reality. And the, the experiments had real unintended consequences in the sense that in the, in the peacetime era, when, um, when they were, you know, hipping people to LSD in the late fifties at Stanford, a couple of the people that rolled down to Palo Alto to, uh, to sign up and make $5 or whatever as an LSD LSD uh, test subject. One of them was Ken Kesey. There we go. Uh, one of them was Robert Hunter, the guy that wrote uh, Grateful Dead lyrics. So they accidentally create the counterculture. They did. Ken Kesey took LSD multiple times as part of a Stanford prison experiment, and then and then told was like, "Hey, you guys, of people about it. <laughs> hey, guess what? I mean, this is you know how Timothy Leary uh, got sort of hipped to it. So." They did absolutely inadvertently create the counterculture, um, but they were doing other things too. The CIA had a subprogram called um, so MK Ultra expanded into it. It sort of fractured and expanded into a whole family of programs: MK Search, MK Chickwit. These are some of the great rappers of their time. It's just today, like you know, you get Google, but then you've got Google Earth and Google Maps. Right. And- One of them uh, was called. Operation Midnight Climax. Whoa. And in That's a little naughty for the era. It's not a little naughty. In Marin County, the CIA uh, built a hotel complex full of one-way mirrors what? where they had CIA-employed prostitutes. Wait, so they know Midnight Climax is a sexy thing that didn't just come out of a computer? Oh, no. They're, it, this they, is 100% sexy. The CIA is too... They, they, they're not innocent at all. No. Like, they know exactly what they're doing at this point. They're dirty. Uh, they would lure Johns, the CIA prostitutes would lure Johns into these, like, party hotel environments. Then they would feed them LSD and other drugs and CIA agents would be on the other side of one way glass, uh, watching them. But uh, by all accounts, those agents were also like drinking and doing drugs. And it was just like these crazy hedonistic scenes that 
uh, no one claims to have ever extracted a single bit of not only actionable intelligence, but any like no one even tried any data at all. It was just it was just a like early sixties drug party. Uh, well, people back then didn't know that if you ask a prostitute if they're a CIA operative lacing you with acid, they have to tell you. Interesting. Interesting. One of the one of the things that I learned here that I'd never heard of before was there was a they attempted to. You know, a speedball is a combination of a barbiturate and a, and a, amphetamine, some kind of you know heroin, cocaine, but some some combination of an upper and a downer. Does both, and it's not good. It killed John Belushi. But they they worked out this way, or they experimented with this thing, where they would hook people up to two IVs, barbiturate in the right arm and amphetamine in the left arm. And they would hit them with barbiturate first, and right as the person was entering into a sort of barbiturate, like, sleep state, then they would put amphetamine in the other arm. And so the amphetamine would hit them, and they would start to, that the idea was, they would put them in a dream state and then get them to talk. Their yeah, their their resistance is down, but they can still cooperate. And what ended up happening was they they got the, they got they put people basically into a barbiturate coma and then hit them with amphetamine and peep and and the you can die right. Well, what they started to do was just babble incoherently. Uh, and it it ended up not being a very good technique. But I'm I'm surprised I'd never heard of that as a counterculture thing. It seemed like of, of all the drug people I know that no one's ever tried the. The MK Ultra, uh, MK Ultra like delayed speedball. I'm giving people listening to the show. I'm giving futurelings a lot of ideas here. I don't want you to go out and try this. Here's what I'm imagining, and again, don't try this. Two teams of CAA guys in like tortoise cell glasses playing foosball or something, and each time one team scores a goal, they up the barbiturate dosage. <laughs> but every time Stan's team scores a goal, they up the amphetamine dosage. Yeah, I'm I'm rooting for Stan again. I don't want you trying this. One of the one of the aspects of this program that uh, that kind of ended up being the most concerning was I'm already concerned by the way that MK Ultra collaborated with a Canadian doctor by the name of Donald Ewan Cameron, who was uh, already kind of popular in the psychological press at the time for his idea, uh, his notion of psychic driving. Which was I don't know if you if 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 you ever practiced this kind of like um, like r- repetitive kind of affirmations or mind trying trying to change some aspect of yourself by um, by playing through a scene in your imagination or saying a mantra. Sure, but psychic driving the 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 principle behind it was that. You could, by repeating a single phrase over and over to a person, that you could erase bad memories or you could instill, um, like, good habits. Like this seems, you know. this seems like magical thinking. It seems like that's something you would want in a fairy tale, is the ability to repeat a magic word and have it change somebody's mind. And this is the thing about psychology in the mid-20th century. A lot of it was, I mean, like so much of what we do in human life, someone comes up with a theory and writes it down on a piece of paper 
and shows it to people, and they think because it's written down on a piece of paper that it must be true. We know what you think about the social sciences. <laughs> You're on the record. What uh, what psychic driving evolved into was uh, that he would put people in medically induced comas and then play tape loops of just a single phrase, sometimes for weeks and it's just at like a stop, time. Stop biting your nails or whatever? Or, um, or, or spy, spy for... I am the walrus, I am the walrus, I am the walrus for weeks at a time, and then bring them out of a coma to see what happens. And, hey, he's got a little pad. All right, so... <laughs> so, uh, what are you? <laughs> how'd it go? And, uh, and he ruined people. Like, oh, really that's... broke people's minds. But the CIA loved it. Uh, and they funded his experiments through a front company called the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology. Oh, yeah, sure. The SIHP. Uh, he, uh, he experimented with a lot of electroshock treatment. All of this whilst being somewhat celebrated by the, uh, the medical establishment. He was, during this period, the chairman of the, and I think the first chairman of the World Psychiatric Association. Huh. Um, he was like a pretty celebrated scientist and using LSD as a component of psychic driving. So put a person in, dose them and then play repetitive tapes for them as a, as a, a way of potentially like erasing their mind. Well, depending on how he was putting them in a coma before, this might be better. Well, he did. It, it does seem like he erased some people's minds or partly, uh, but not, uh, but did not create it didn't, like a usable spot. It wasn't just to quit smoking. No, like he just bad. made vegetables. CIA during this period also maintained what we learned about many years later, which was overseas detention centers in countries that did not have practices, did not, uh, adhere to the Geneva Convention or the Nuremberg Laws. I'm going to have to say, it sounds like the U.S. and Canada are not real good at adhering to some parts of the Nuremberg Laws and Geneva Convention. Really bad. And they were conducting these kinds of experiments on on foreign prisoners. There's no record of how many people were manipulated, abused, died, uh, and no civilian, committed suicide. No civilian or governmental oversight. Uh, none whatsoever until 19, until, until Watergate. Whoa. Um, so these programs by the mid sixties, it was recognized that they were not producing any usable stratagems. The analogy to the waterboarding. There's no intelligence is is crazy. I guess institutionally the CIA did not learn much from MKUltra failing. No, and they tried it all. And in fact, they invented a lot of new drugs. There's a drug that they called BZ, which, uh, I mean, they didn't invent them, but when they discovered drugs that had these psychoactive qualities, they would bring them over to MKUltra and see what they did, combine them with all these other techniques. And if you think about being on these drugs and subjected to electroshock therapy and sensory deprivation and sexual shame... Um, you can, you can see why, uh, the idea of someone on LSD that is like mentally shattered there, there really are those people. Well, even apart from the, just the inhumanity of this stuff, which I can't get away from, you'd think that the CIA would have noticed at some point that they were pouring a ton of money into operations that have been going on for decades and not 
producing any results. Well, the CIA is pretty good at that. You're good at continuing to pour money into things that aren't really producing any results. Because if you stop pouring money in, what if your appropriations get cut? Well, especially if you're worried that uh, that around the globe, the Soviets and the Communist Chinese are also working on all these programs, and you have spies working among you that are Manchurian candidates. And their BZ might work. Their BZ probably does. They've they have They've tortured. Got CZ. Well, and there's there's the other thing about uh, about the mundanity of people working on these programs is that in their estimation, these unfree countries don't even have to obey the, the laws that they're flouting. Right. I mean, we're, we're the orderly ones. Yeah. They're, we're the ones that chaos. have to take it to Panama to do this stuff. They can just do it in, in, uh, in downtown Moscow. Jeez. In 73, during the Watergate era, there was a kind of, uh, and this is Pentagon papers era. There was a lot of panic in Washington and, um, CIA director Richard Helms uh, had a lot of the MK Ultra files destroyed. He tried to have the entire program erased from institutional memory. Had word gotten out into the conspiracy press? Were people talking about how the CIA does this stuff? So the the uh, the journalist Seymour Hirsch, who continues to be a fly in the ointment of uh, secret programs and government uh, unto now, right? He was he. Yeah, he's, he, the, he's the Milai Massacre guy, right? Yeah, he. but he also exposed, I think... Um, yeah, didn't uh, he do Bush era stuff? Yeah, he he was exposing Bush crimes. And in, th- in fact, I think it might be Abu Ghraib. He's the one that accused... He's the one that built up all these conspiracy theories about SEAL Team 6 and Osama bin Laden. Right. That actually, that didn't go down the way we said I went down, et cetera, et cetera. But he, throughout his whole career, he has... He has dozens and dozens of exposés where you wonder how in the heck. I mean, if you do believe in conspiracy theories, why wasn't Seymour Hirsch buried in a shallow grave somewhere 40 years ago? Because he was calling attention to this. He's revealing the ones they want us to know about. That's right. Uh, But it was after uh, Nixon, uh, there was an investigation into the CIA spying on uh, domestic Americans. And there was a, there was a panel called the Rockefeller group. And then the, the uh, Senator Frank church started a a major investigation into CIA's misuse of, or, or, uh, you know, misuse of resources and also exceeding their authority by spying on Americans. And as part of those investigations, they uncovered MK Ultra, which was a little bit beyond spying on Americans. It was, um, you know, this kind of gross victimization victimization of Americans. And in 1977, uh, through a Freedom of Information Act discovery, 20,000 MK Ultra documents were discovered. And again, talk Oops. about mundane. Richard Helms missed a They were just discovered because locker. somebody, yeah, somebody put them in the wrong box and filed them with tax documents instead of with these are secret and should be destroyed. So some of it has been revealed and, you know, all of that stuff was shut down. It had been shut down long before in, in in any practical sense um, because it wasn't producing results, but then formally shut down um, by the, by those sort of, uh, Ford and Carter era investigations. You know, right after this period is when George Herbert Walker Bush headed up the CIA. So he was the guy that came in to clean up after all this MK Ultra expose. 
pretty gross, pretty gross, m- gross moment in time. Did it in fact clean up? Well, if you think about CIA torture as it evolved into the 2000s. That's what I'm saying. They didn't learn their lessons at all. Well, you don't, you hear about people being put in boxes and uh, like confined, tied up in boxes, being attacked by dogs and denied food and played heavy metal music and waterboarded and whipped and made to sit naked on a floor. But the torture report is very clear that this is not real torture. You know, we're, we're simulating this awful MK Ultra stuff, but we're not actually going to do it. Right, because, because what, what you don't hear about is that they gave any of those guys LSD. Mm. Well, to be fair, that is a little better. I mean, I don't know. As somebody who's taken LSD, I, if I was going to be waterboarded and made to sit cold on the floor all night. I'd rather I'd rather drop acid rather first. Be tripping. And that concludes Project MK Ultra, entry 993.hb0111, certificate number 28598 in the omnibus. Futurelings, we uh, our drug of choice in our time is social media. Uh, now that we're all clean and sober, we just break our brains with pixels and by picking online fights. That's Our, our imaginary enemies are not communists. They are uh, people calling us names on Twitter. You can follow at Omnibus Project pretty much anywhere your computer takes you. I'm at Ken Jennings on Twitter. John is at John Roderick on Instagram and intermittently Twitter, intertwittently, where he's now a prominent Star Wars uh blogger and authority mm-hmm. uh you can email us your thoughts and suggestions at the omnibus project at gmail.com you can send us physical items like our friend dawn from uh bothell did she sent us a delicious recipe for family uh family recipe for peanut butter bars that because you mentioned Reese's peanut butter cups recently. I like a I like a peanut butter bar. Well, this is a peanut butter bar that are so good that uh, her brother used to request this every year on his birthday. It's very a very picky recipe. She says you have to use real peanut butter, not like Skippy or Jif. So she, well, duh. Adam's peanut butter is the only kind we have around here. Do you, Adam's crunchy. Is that the kind you have to stir? Yeah, I'm not stirring peanut butter. The, what's the matter with you? I don't have that kind of time. Stir your peanut butter. Uh, she also sent two books, and she says it's. She, was that laughter? <laughs> yeah. Was it on the recording? No, I'm just gonna keep. I'm just gonna keep like a. a Do we laughter, have a laugh track now? A laughter loop that I can just put on. Am I tripping? Uh, she also sent a couple. <laughs> <laughs> it's like reality, but more intense. She sent a couple books for us too, which is very nice. Uh, she sent them to PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline, Washington nine eight one five five. I got a copy of Mr. Silly from the Mr. Books. Oh, I, I know about the Mr. Books. Yeah, we talked about Price Turn Sloan on the show once before, and I have no memory of when. So you got Mr. Silly, but I don't get one? You get something better. You get this book of Vargas Girls. Good good girl, oh. early 20th century pinup art. Boy, they 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 know us to a T. You, you get like, Mr. Silly, and I get Vargas you Girls. You don't like sheer negligees in the mail, do you? Oh, I do. Hello. Well, you enjoy your airbrushed... Hello, sister. Your airbrushed Var Girls. You, we won't be hearing from John anymore. va On this program. Uh, look for your fellow Omnibus listeners online. Uh, they are called Futurelings, and you might find them on Facebook. You might find them on Reddit. 
or Discord. Uh, you can certainly support the show. You might find them on a bus. You might find them. Yeah, just get on a bus and yell, Futurelings! You will probably be asked to leave the bus. You can uh, contribute to the show uh, through our Patreon, patreon.com slash omnibusproject. There's a variety of different perks available for those who support the show financially. Uh, we thank you because it encourages... Uh, it's what allows the show to continue. Um, at the lowest possible level of... The lowest possible tier of donation, you receive a free addenda episode. Mm, the lowest possible tier, but we're not encouraging you to, to give it that level. Well, here's the thing about one of the higher levels. You get perks like being able to choose the topic of a show. For example, today's entry on MK Ultra was chosen by a listener, Jared Toogood. Um, His name is Gerald Toogood? Jared Toogood. Jared Toogood. Yes. Not too good for us. Boy, I, that, that's a pretty great name. <laughs> Jared Toogood. Yeah, I'm sure he had some rough times in the playground, but now at least he's getting his name made fun of on a podcast. Yeah. So Right on, Jared. Things are, things are turning around for him. Thank you for your support, Jared. Uh, we hope you enjoyed learning about MK Ultra. Ken uh, Ken just told me that he and I are having some kind of Skype meetup with a Patreon donor who has donated at the level that entitles them to a Skype meetup. Do you want it? Do you want a twist here? That listener is, in fact, Jared Toogood. I no. believe. Yes. What? Because he gave it the highest level, or his girlfriend did on his behalf as a gift, which means he gets all the gifts. He gets to um, he gets a signed copy of the show notes. He gets to choose an omnibus topic, which he picked MK Ultra, and he's going to hang out with us next week online. Wow, Jared, too good. You know, we we were nothing's we, too good for our friend Jared. We were speculating on whether Jared would be excited to sit and talk with us on Skype, or whether because this was a gift from his girlfriend, that maybe he's going to be like, "Hey guys, yeah, I know this is weird." We're we're not clear on how much material we need to bring. This is all going to air long after we actually talk to Jared, so he's. Yeah, this 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 is um this is already like long 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 yeah, we're, in the we're distant months past. in advance. Yeah. There could be an update in some of August shows where we describe exactly how our meeting with Jared went yeah. and maybe we'll give him a little rating. Maybe we'll <laughs> hit him with a blackjack and and push him out a window, MK Ultra style. He's into that. Futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived or whether or not Ken and I are just sitting here in a barbiturate haze that's that's been uh, like they've been secretly pumping gas into this bunker. Yeah, is this for a Philip K. Deck novel? Is none of this real? Is no one listening to this? <laughs> uh, we hope and pray that if that catastrophe has come to pass, that we never ever ever sober up. Uh, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But providence allows. We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>